0: Good day to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We are ready to do a summary on 1 Corinthians. Now this may be a little long. I know the Roman summary was a little long. But I think it's worthwhile to come back after we've gone through all the details and just kind of do an overview of each chapter. Just kind of get a feel for what the epistle was about in a higher level way. Um, definitely all the details are are great and we should definitely always read and get all the details but uh, I think for some reason in my mind I think this is important to get these high level ideas too because it kind of shows you what Paul was actually really trying to communicate. And then when you go and look at some of the details you do find things in there that are even you know at another level uh, very spiritual and helpful. but all right. So, 1 Corinthians, um, if we look at chapter 1, the main idea here in chapter 1 was the call for unity, for there to be no divisions. Um, Our key verse in chapter 1 for this is um, verse 10. But I urge you believers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you be in full agreement in what you say and that there be no divisions or factions among you but that you be perfectly united in your way of thinking and in your judgment about matters of faith. Now, I am reading this from the Amplified Bible. I'll remind you again. But uh, uh, Also in chapter 1, at the, at the end, uh, Paul begins speaking about the wisdom of God and how it is foolish to men. And uh, you can see that... Well, hold on a second. You can see that in... Uh, Verse, uh, oops, I almost looked at the wrong one. Let me scroll. Let me, well, I would like to scroll down. Hold on a second, I'm sorry. Technical difficulties. Let me scroll down and I will get that. Because the reference here, I believe, is uh, verse 31. So then, as it is written in Scripture, he who boasts and glories, let him boast and glory in the Lord. And not in and of himself. And in that kind of foolishness. That was that was <clears throat> my thinking as I was reading this. No, it's verse 21, not 31. <clears throat> I apologize. I probably wrote that down wrong. For since the world through all its earthly wisdom failed to recognize God, God in his wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to save those who believe in Christ and welcome him as Savior. So, in chapter 1, he starts to talk about the wisdom of God, and if you look at verse 21, I do apologize, my My handwriting is atrocious anyway, <laughs> and then I worked on this, and I got this already, but I haven't been able to come back to that and actually do this until now, so while I did read this, um, obviously I did not realize that I had written that incorrectly, even for me, with bad handwriting, I wrote it incorrectly, so So it's verse 21 where he talks about the wisdom of God and it being foolishness to men. Um, For since the world, through all its earthly wisdom, failed to recognize God, God in his wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to save those who believe in Christ and welcome him as Savior. So, now, In chapter 2, I'm going to move us on to chapter 2 here. In chapter 2, he continues speaking about the wisdom of God and his reliance on the Spirit. Or maybe our reliance on the Spirit would be clearer. Um, Let me come down. The the main verse here is verse. For the meaning that I'm getting um, as I read this, the, the main verse here is Verse 16, um, for who has known the mind and purposes of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ to be guided by his thoughts and purposes. See, Paul did not convert the, uh, did not convert the Corinthians through clever speech, and, but he, rather through the power of God, through the, the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So there's a difference. He, he talks about the difference in the spiritual man and the natural man. And the spiritual man understands the things of God, but the natural man does not. And that's why, you know, to me, the key verse is verse 16, For who has known the mind and purposes of the Lord so as to instruct him? You know, but we have the mind of Christ to be guided by his thoughts and purposes. It's not naturally within us to, in any way, Instruct God, okay? I mean, we are not that smart. We're not that good. <laughs> it's just the way it is All right, so now chapter 3 chapter 3 the main idea in chapter 3 is They were not spiritual and again they had divisions, but they are they're not being spiritually minded. They're not spiritual enough So uh, the key verse here is verse 3 you are still worldly controlled by ordinary impulses the sinful capacity for as long as there is jealousy and strife and discord among you, you are are you not unspiritual, and are you not walking like ordinary men, unchanged by faith? This is at once a simple idea and yet also a hard thing to do in our lives, even for everyone. You know, because um, they're still being worldly; they've not, um, they've not been spiritual enough to weed out all these things, and, you know, he talks about divisions are wrong, that all people are workers for God, all Christians, I'm sorry, all Christians are workers for God, and uh, there shouldn't be those divisions, because you're all, we're all workers, anyone who believes in Jesus and God, and is trying to follow them, we're all workers for God. We're all in the same fields and we all have the same master. All those other divisionary things don't matter. And then he says, You are the temple of God. Abandon worldly wisdom and pretension for godly wisdom. You know, I think, uh, weren't they also thinking that they were, they were thinking that they were, you know, um, they were kind of puffed up. They were kind of you know, under the pretense that they were, they were very spiritual, that they were better than others. Yeah, if you look at verse 18 for that, um, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in, in this age, let him become a fool, discarding his worldly pretensions and acknowledging his lack of wisdom so that he may become truly wise. And that means being truly wise in the Lord and God. Then we move on to chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, he continues a little bit with that. He's he's telling them not to be puffed up. And there's some key. There's actually a couple of verses here, I think, that are key. Now, when I say key verses, I think they're behind the idea that he's communicating. They're not always the key verses like we think of as the well-known, popular verses. Sometimes they are those well-known, popular verses, but not always. Um... So, I may not even mention a well-known, well-used, well-loved verse that, that we're familiar with, but just know that I'm trying to just bring out the, the gist of the letter that Paul has written. I'm not trying to delve into those details again. So, here is uh, verse 8. <clears throat> you behave as if you are already filled with spiritual wisdom and in need of nothing more, Already you have become rich in spiritual gifts. You and your conceit conceit, have ascended your thrones and become kings without us. And how I wish that it were true and that you did reign as kings so that we might reign with you. So Paul's letting them know that they are you know, they're thinking too much of themselves. They're you know, they think that they are already. They act as though they know it all. You know, <laughs> let's put it that way. They act as though they know it all. They have no need, even of Paul or any of the others. They're they're already puffed up. They're complete. Um, then, in the second half of this chapter, Paul talks about the hardships uh, the ministry, the ministers, and the apostles face. Um, let's see, we can look at verse 11 for some of that, let me get there, I apologize, okay, to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, we are continually poorly dressed, and we are roughly treated and wander homeless, and he's just talking about, you know, he's comparing, he is doing a comparison, one, that how they're, they think they are complete and they don't need anything, but he's also letting them know the hardships that the ministers and the apostles face. And he says, I do not write these things, this is in verse 14, to shame you, but to warn and advise you as my beloved children. So he's trying to advise them, he's trying to get them to not be, you know, to not be puffed up and to realize that... uh, that, it, that there's hardships that these guys these you know by comparison these people who really are being very spiritual and working very hard for the lord they're going through you know some hard times you know and so he's you know basically telling them not to be puffed up and to try to follow what they're being taught and to be more spiritual again you know, he's urging them to be imitators of him as he imitates um, Christ. You know, that's also a part of this. If you look down in verse uh, 16, so I urge you to be imitators of me just as a child imitates his father. He says, and above that he says, for I I became your father in Christ Jesus through the good news of salvation. Because he came there and he converted probably quite a number of them. Alright, so then we have chapter 5, where the main idea is Paul is rebuking immorality in the group. Now you notice in chapter 4, he's telling them to not be puffed up and think so much of themselves because they're not that spiritual and they don't know it all. And then here in verse 5, he's rebuking them for having immorality in the group, which they do have. Um, One of the key verses is verse 11. And in verse 11, but actually I have written to you not to associate with any so-called Christian brother if he is sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater devoted to anything that takes the place of God or is a reviler who insults or slanders or otherwise verbally abuses others or is a drunkard or a swindler, you must not so much as eat with such a person. Now there are churches and people who... Strictly, really hold on to this. Um, my only thing about this is, I would have to before I would disassociate myself from a, a fellow Christian, I would have to know without a doubt that they are really being totally immoral. Because then, and really then, I wouldn't want to associate with them because you, you're not truly a Christian if you're if you're that immoral. Um, so, but I'm sure they had issues. In the church, and I'm sure we have that in churches now. So, um, so the main idea it was Paul was telling them to stay away from immoral people and to get this immorality out of the group. Um, let's see. He uh, let's see. Let's look at verse six for just a second. There was uh, your boasting over the supposed spirituality of your church is not good. Indeed, it is vulgar and inappropriate. Do you not know that just a little leaven ferments the whole batch of dough just as a little sin corrupts a person or an entire church? So he's fussing at them over their boasting over their spirituality as has been mentioned before. You'll notice throughout this letter there are certain um, ideas that keep that keep showing up. <laughs> he's trying to get the idea across. He really is. Um, and then, he also says, you know, this is, this is going to sound odd in a way, but he also says not to disassociate from the world. So, look at verse 10. Not meaning, okay, well, let's look at 9 and 10. I wrote you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, there was a letter before this one that we don't have. Or at least I don't know of it. So, this this proves that. So, anyway, he told him not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not meaning the immoral people of this world or the greedy ones and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to get out of the world and human society altogether. In other words, he's telling us not to associate... I mean, if you're going to relate this to us present day... We should not associate with Christians who are basically immoral practicing these things of the world and yet claiming to be Christians. Why? Because really, when you come right down to it, you're not truly a Christian if you're that immoral. Now, I'm not talking about someone having flaws and someone having weaknesses and, and having sin that they they are constantly trying to work against and not fall into and they, they keep they keep trying and working every day. We're talking about immoral people who, who are saying they're Christian, but they are still practicing really, basically, really bad things on purpose. Do you see? I mean, if you see the difference, they are truly sexually immoral. They they don't regret what they're doing. They're just doing it. They're continuing to do it. Um, so you're saying disassociate from them because, and I think. Think truly. While I don't think he comes right out and says it here, truly that's because that uh, I think they're claiming to be something they're really not. Even if they don't realize it, that's that's probably the case. And it will it will corrupt others because others will start thinking, well, if he can do that, I can do that because he's doing it. You know, it's it's okay. And unfortunately, people do tend to think that way. I wish they didn't, but they tend to. That does tend to pollute the, the thought processes of the group. But he's saying, don't disassociate from the world and the worldly people, because how else, if you did that, we would have to get out of the world and human society altogether. And if you do that, then how how would they hear the gospel? How would you be an example for them? How would you ever sway them to come to God? But no, this is talking about getting immorality out of the group and this is this is purposeful immorality. This is not this is purposeful behavior and it's repetitive and it's behavior that they don't want to change, they're not going to change, they're not open to change. You see what I mean? It's not like it's not like it's someone who's struggling but working hard and trying. Those people you strengthen and you help. We're talking about disassociating from people who um, are not struggling, or not trying, but are going about in this immoral way and are not willing to, to even change or look at change or to uh, study and try to, you know, change. So, I just wanted to make sure we're clear on that. Now, in chapter six... The main idea here, which you're surprised looking at Christians that this is necessary, but we're all still human beings, okay? Um, Paul is telling them not to have lawsuits against each other. Don't have these kind of strifes and and, uh, um, um, these adversarial relationships. You know, don't be at each other's throats legally. Um, key verses here are like verses five and seven. Um, I say this to your shame: Can it be that there is not one wise man among you who is governed by integrity and will be able and competent to decide private disputes between his fellow believers? We should be able, you know, to discern and judge these things. It's it's not that difficult. And then seven why the very fact that you have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? He's basically saying it would be better to be wronged by your brother than to have a lawsuit with him. Because they were taking each other to court. Now, I don't know all the details, and Paul doesn't get into all the details, but definitely... This was not a good thing. Now Paul talks about um, he talks about them in such a way as I think as to try to get them to come together in thinking more about uh, not being at odds. Um, if you look at he talks about the unrighteous will not inherit and he says do you not know this is verse 9 through 11 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor perversely effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, whose words are used as weapons to abuse, insult, humiliate, intimidate, or slander, nor swindlers, will inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God. And then, this is the verse, And such were some of you before you believed. But you were washed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You were sanctified, set apart for God and made holy. You were justified, declared free of guilt in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit of our God, the source of the believer's new life and changed behavior. So, he's reminding them, and such were some of you, before. You know, he's not necessarily saying everyone was that way, but he's saying such were some of you. And then, he goes down into talking about um, everything is permissible. You know, all these good things in the world can be enjoyed, and, and everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to be enslaved by anything such as, um, you know, being enslaved to, say, food or being enslaved to a habit of, like, alcohol or or tobacco. Um, It's not saying necessarily that you can't ever enjoy something in the right way at the right time just a little bit, you know, in moderation as the way things are supposed to be. Um, But... That we should be cautious and not to be enslaved to these things you know those people who are going out partying every Friday and Saturday night Whoa, it's Friday night it's Saturday night whoa gotta go gotta, they're almost enslaved to this ritual every week and they're just wearing themselves out I've seen it done I mean and they just wear themselves out and they hurt themselves and there was a little time when I was young that I did similarly not not very long honestly because I work and stuff and I was working even very young and supporting myself and I I just it was money and it was time and I just got to where in pretty short order I got to where I thought that felt like that was a waste. <laughs> so that's just me. I don't I don't I didn't buy into that whole ritual so much. But <clears throat> there was a time there was a time when I did some of that definitely and I, I have to admit that. But, anyway, so every, but everything is permissible, but not all things are beneficial, and we don't want to allow things to enslave us. Now, he specifically does, Paul does specifically talk about food, but um, there, are, there are other things. I mean, you can really get to, you know, I don't believe everything is a, an addiction like in a physical addiction but you can certainly get into a habit of doing certain things or enjoying certain things too much and become a little bit obsessed and, and go overboard. I have a tendency when I enjoy doing something to kind of overdo it sometimes. So I have to back myself back down. Um, and it's, it's not harmful things. It could be something as simple as um, reading uh, reading a good book I just get, you know, I would get so I can remember when I was younger. I would, I liked to read, and I got to uh, one point where I was reading to the exclusion of almost all else. I was just reading and enjoying reading, and that is a good thing. But uh, again, too much of anything is still too much. So, and we're talking about all the good things. When Paul is saying everything is permissible, he's talking about all the good things that God has supplied us here. He's not talking about everything's permissible, like it's impermissible to hurt someone or anything like that. That, we know, is off the table. That has never been on the table. Okay. So, alright. Now also, let's see, let's look at verses for this, because he's also telling them that our body is the Lord's. We've been purchased. And he goes into these um, these verses here uh, verse 12 is the one one of the ones I was mainly looking at everything is permissible for me but not all things are beneficial. Everything is permissible for me but I will not be enslaved by anything and brought under its power allowing it to control me and that's where we're also talking about addiction okay Now then in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Am I therefore to take the members of Christ and make them part of a prostitute? Certainly not. Corinth was a big town with a lot of prostitution in it due to they had a lot of temples of Aphrodite, if I remember correctly. And um, so they had like this uh, almost religious prostitution going on, okay, as well as probably normal stuff too, because they were a big port town. So, verse 18, Run away from sexual immorality in any form, whether thought or behavior, whether visual or written. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the one who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So, Paul is urging us to run away, flee from, stay away from sexual immorality. Think about how difficult that is in the current society, though. It is, it's is—it's a big deal. I mean, think about all the sexualized messages we get every day if uh, we don't turn off that stuff and don't get away from that stuff. Okay, and lastly, um, Paul's message in this chapter is one of... Um, We've been purchased by Christ. We have been bought. We are... The t- okay, here. Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have received as a gift from God, and that you are not your own property? Verse 20. You were bought with a price. You were actually purchased with the precious blood of Jesus and made his own. So then, honor and glorify God with your body. Paul says it better than I could. So, our body is the temple. And we should treat it accordingly. Now, we're moving on to chapter 7. The main idea here is teaching on marriage. uh, Marriage and basically status. um, Our status. Let's go into this. Um, 1 through uh, 6... Verses one through six, uh, Paul is referring to a loving Christian marriage. In in these he's. Let me read this. Now as to the matters of which you wrote it is good beneficial advantageous for a man not to touch a woman outside of marriage but because of the temptation to participate in sexual immorality let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now see we're talking about a Christian marriage the husband must fulfill his marital duty to his wife with good will and kindness and likewise the wife to her husband The wife does not have exclusive authority over her own body, but the husband shares with her. And likewise, the husband does not have exclusive authority over his body, but the wife shares with him. Do not deprive each other of marital rights, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves unhindered to prayer. But come together again so that Satan will not tempt you to sin because of your lack of self-control. Now in verse 6, Paul says, but I'm saying this as a concession, not as a command, meaning you don't have to be married, Um, but it's a concession to the fact that, you know, they are sexually tempted and um, their lack of self-control, which we, I mean, let's let's just put that paintbrush to ourselves, that's all of us nowadays too, people have not really changed in that manner, In that manner. Now uh, if you go into details on this. This is referring to a. A a Christian marriage. You know two Christian people. Who are married and how we should. I, I mean. He doesn't go into extreme details. Which is very good. But he does talk about how we should be towards each other. Sexually. In a general way. In that we should do this with goodwill and kindness. If you're roughing each other up. I mean, honestly, it's probably not any of my business, but that seems like the wrong spirit and the wrong intent is there, okay? I'm just going to say that, and I'm not going to delve into any more details. I think this was intended to be a certain way and, and to be handled a certain way, and I don't think that pain and hurting each other was a part of it, okay? So, but he's talking about also being sure to perform your duties, meaning, and he doesn't necessarily mean it to make it a duty, but, you know, you should be willing to love and care for one another, another enough to, uh, to share yourself with them on a regular basis and without, without it becoming an ordeal or, or making a drudgery of it. Okay. So that's all I'm going to talk about there. That's probably too much. Um, so, in, uh, also in this chapter he's talking about when you're saved when you get down to verse 12 when you become when, oh, I'm not saying this right when you become baptized into Christ when you become a believer um, if you're married you should stay married Now, if that person is not a believer and they choose to leave, fine. That's okay. You're not beholden or um, required to stay married to them. But, if possible, you should stay married. You might be able to win your spouse over by staying married and setting a good example and showing them how you should be. That may take time. And I admit that there are some spouses and some people that you're never going to win over. So if you're in a very abusive relationship, I would say get away, get out of that relationship. And then you can try to maybe set a good example. But most likely if you're in an abusive situation, it's going to be very difficult for you to win that person over. It's very difficult for people to change. They need to become a believer in change. First, then you could reconcile with them if you felt like it was really a good idea. Um, Primarily, I would say not, but that's me. That's just my opinion. All right. But, also, if you are baptized and you become a new believer, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, you should just remain that way. You don't need to change that. You don't need to do anything about that. Um, now, the verses, I'm sorry, for, for staying married or um, the verses for that, it's like in verse 12. You know, uh, if it talks about if you have an unbelieving spouse to stay with them because you might, you know, and because your marriage is still fine. You know, whatever state you're in you have to start from there. I think I got into that into detail when we were reading through this chapter. So if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, just remain that way. You don't have to change that. You don't have to do anything about that. Um, That's in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God, following God, following the Lord. That's what matters. It also doesn't matter what your status in life is. Are you a slave or are you free? Are you an indentured servant? Are you poor? Are you rich? Do not worry. It doesn't matter. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Do not worry about that since your status as a believer is equal to that of a freeborn believer. But if you are able to gain your freedom, do that. If you're able to better your status, do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Just make sure that you're following the Lord and you're doing it properly and correctly according to God's word. And then in the end, he's saying that to remain single is actually better. He believes that to remain single is better, and especially for widows and widowers. And at the end, he says, I think I also have the spirit of God in this matter. This is verse 40, but in my opinion, a widow is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God in this matter. Now, notice that he does say, but in my opinion, even though he says, I think I have the Spirit of God in this matter, Paul was a single person at this point in his life. We don't know a lot. I don't know a lot anyway. But from reading these uh, chapters, it appears that Paul was very much a single person. At this point in his life. And he felt it was better to be a single person. To devote yourself wholly to God. However. We know that not everyone. Is a minister. An apostle. A preacher. So that you're not as wholly devoted to God. As someone else. Yes you can spend a lot of time. And do a lot of good things and good works. But. You know. it's You you're You have you do have and and God allows for and wants you to be happy you do have time and can you know can have a relationship if that is if you want that if that is better for you alright so chapter 8 the main idea here is about food choices in a way but also about not causing one another to stumble key verses are verse 9 only be careful that this liberty liberty of yours, this power to choose, does not somehow become a stumbling block. That is a temptation to sin to the weak in conscience for those around you. Make sure that you're not accidentally causing them to be tempted or to sin. And in verse 13... He says, therefore, if my eating a certain food causes my brother to stumble or sin, I will not eat such meat ever again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So it's important that we not do things, because you can relate this to things other than food. We not do things that would cause others to stumble and sin. We and a, a good example of this is we have freedom to enjoy things in this life. However, if you know you're going to be around someone who is, say, and let's just say they're an alcoholic, and you were going to uh, I don't know, you were going to like have something very mild, like a very mild wine with, with dinner you were serving and you were inviting people over, but you knew you had this one guest who was an alcoholic. I would not serve that one not at all i would not serve anything alcoholic because i would not want to do anything to tempt that person to cause them issues uh and that's that's a very uh, mild example but there are other examples and I, I may not be able to think of it right off but i would not want to uh, do anything to tempt my brother or my sister to uh to sin just because we're free to do it doesn't mean that's necessarily always beneficial or good for everyone. Um, if I know that you oh if I know you have a peanut allergy, I'm not going to be serving peanuts. You know what I mean in any form. I'm going to make sure that is excluded. I don't want someone to be injured even from a physical standpoint. So the spiritual standpoint still remains the same as well. So, you see, we're trying to be um, not causing one another to stumble. We're trying to be considerate of one another, which is a big theme also. in uh, some of the things that Paul has written, we've read even in Romans. So, alright. We're going to move on to verse 9. Pardon me just a moment. I'm getting really dry. okay so the main idea in verse 9 Paul is an apostle and um, let's see let's read verses 5 through 6 okay and all have the same you know all the apostles have the same rights so verse 5 and 6 have we not the right to take along with us a believing wife, as do the rest of the apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to stop doing manual labor in order to support our ministry? There appears to be a difference in what's going on, and that Paul and Barnabas, they have a way to support their ministry as they travel. Some sort of trade that they're doing, that they're using to help supplement or support themselves. Sorry, I just hit the mic. <clears throat> but um, also, they uh, it sounds like some of the other apostles do not have such a trade. Now, and he mentions Peter specifically, and if you think about Peter, Peter was a fisherman running a fishing business. That was their livelihood. They don't know how to do, and I'm not trying to be mean or anything cruel, um, they don't necessarily know how to do anything, any other trade. Um, Back then when you learned a trade and a skill and you, you got very good at it and you did that work and that's what you did. You didn't necessarily have other skills. You didn't necessarily have time for other skills. You had to support your family. You had to bring that food in literally <laughs> and you know so he would not necessarily have had a skill that he could use as he traveled and, and spread the gospel to support himself so he was reliant more on uh, donations from the congregations and you know Paul is making some contrast here like someone had maybe said something about him and Barnabas maybe they you know should just support themselves or something anyway he's saying that you know all apostles are traveling and working for God and have a right to these things such as you should be able to bring your wife along you know it's not fair that you would be away from your wife for what years back then you would have been away traveling for years um, so Um, he's talking about them living on the gospel. Let me go down to verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who officiate in the sacred services of the temple eat from the temple offerings of meat and bread and those who regularly attend the altar have their share from the offerings brought to the altar? So also on the same principle, The Lord directed those who preach the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Meaning, that from the offerings, from the church's offerings, um, we should pay the ministers, the apostles, the preachers. We should pay them, you know, a portion of that. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you have to pay them everything. Um, you need some money, especially nowadays the way it works you need some money to maintain your building and different things. So um, back then they really didn't have buildings mostly they were meeting in each other's houses and I imagine they kept some group funds to try to make sure they could supply uh, whatever food and everything because they had um, they did actual meals and did other things together what were more, um, I would say we're way more structured and stodgy nowadays. We are very sort of clinical in the way we come in and do our services. It's okay. We're just highly organized. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I, I, from, from their standpoint back then, they were coming together in their homes. They were having a meal. They were... Um, they were doing things differently because their situation was different and this was very early on. I'm not saying that anything they did was wrong. I'm not saying that anything we do is wrong. It's just the process, um, the things, the, uh, uh, the way we officiate has changed over the centuries. Uh, some of that is probably to the better, and some of it may, may, so maybe some of it's not. Maybe, maybe that keeps us from interacting as well as we would with our brothers and sisters if we did have a more informal gathering. You know, maybe because we're that's that's part of our thing is we're we're very formal nowadays. All right, <clears throat> so, um, and then. Also, after talking about, you know, that living on the gospel, uh, Paul also talks about how he is flexible and how he relates to others in a very flexible manner to be able to win souls. And this is in verses 19 through 23. He talks about that he is, you know, um, while he's free from all men, he's made himself a slave to everyone, to the Jews. I become as a Jew... Um, under the law, and to those who are without the law, I become as one without the law. He's just talking about how he relates to them, to the weak. He becomes weak to talk to them and relate to them on their level, in their way. And the idea is he's trying to lead them to Christ. And it's not that he's putting putting on a show or a pretense, it's just that he tries to relate to everyone where they are on their level. Because you do, you do need to relate to someone in some manner that they understand. And then uh, in verses 24 through 27 down towards the end of the chapter, he's talking about running the race and how we should run the race and how you know, we should discipline ourselves and make sure that we are you know, striving to run the race each day in the correct manner. So we have to train ourselves and have discipline and for us that primarily means prayer and reading the Word, studying the Word, learning more and, and working at that every day. So then we move on to chapter 10. In chapter 10, the main one of the main ideas here, probably the main idea is to avoid the mistakes that Israel made. Um, a key verse here is verse 14. He's urging them to avoid idolatry. Let me uh, find that and I will read that. Verse 14, there we go. Therefore, my beloved, run, keep far, far away from any sort of idolatry, and that includes loving anything more than God or participating in anything that leads to sin and enslaves the soul. So run away from avoid any kind of idolatry. We don't want to put anything in front of God. We don't want to love or get obsessed with anything more than God. So this can be an easy thing to fall into in that, you know, we think of a lot of the things that we can enjoy in this life, a lot of the good things, we think of them as harmless and innocent, and they are until we become obsessed with them and put them in front of God and in front of um, our daily race and our daily um discipline. You see see what we're going at here. Um, So we want to avoid that. That was part of Israel's problem is they kept falling into idolatry. They kept wanting to be like the people around them and chasing the same things. And a lot of times that was idolatry and immoral activities. So um, he talks about in verse 13 he talks about temptation and this is a key thing. Um, to help us avoid these, these pitfalls. No temptation, regardless of its source, has ever overtaken or enticed you that is not common to human experience, nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance. But God is faithful to His Word, He is compassionate and trustworthy, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist, but along with the temptation, He has in the past and is now and will always provide the way out as well, so that you will be able to endure it without yielding and will overcome temptation with joy. That is a long version of that verse, but I know you're familiar with that verse. So, um, that is the verse, you know, to, to help us. Uh, resist the temptation to fall into these things and that's to stay away from these things that we get you know mentally obsessed with um, then in verses 10 and 11 he's talking about being content with God's blessings let me just back up to there for a minute you know don't murmur uh, in discontent you know these are again these are mistakes that the Israelites made you know And he talks about in verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example and a warning to us. They were written for our instruction. So we should learn from their mistakes and avoid those mistakes. Now he comes down in verses 23 and 24, and he comes back to a point he has made already. He says it a little differently. All things are lawful, that is morally legitimate, permissible, but not all things are beneficial or advantageous so all these good things that god has supplied us with in the world they're all and you know i'm I'm talking about good things i'm not talking about things where we're hurting others or doing something like that that's not lawful or permissible and we know it's not um but he's talking about all things are lawful but not necessarily beneficial. And here he says all things are lawful, but not all things are constructive and edifying. So not everything is building you up. Some things are very neutral, like what food you eat is very neutral. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. Um, but we should be considerate of others and um, not uh, not do things to offend others. You know, We should try not to offensive to others. And he says, so then whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of our great God. Do not offend Jews or Greeks or even the church of God, but live to honor him. So we should, you know, try to be considerate and not be um, offensive to others, especially not uh, purposefully offensive. Now, there's times when mistakes are made, or through ignorance you don't know you're offending someone. You can still apologize for that, but uh, but understand that that can happen, and it's, it's unfortunate, but it does. <clears throat> Pardon me. So now, chapter 11. Chapter 11, the key verse to me is um, verse 17, because he's talking about having um, uh, sort of an order in the service. But in giving this next instruction, I do not praise you, because when you meet together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. They were coming together, and I, I get the, uh, the feeling, I get the, the, the intent or the meaning from Paul that they were, uh, they were unorderly. They were disorderly in the way they held their meetings. Now he starts in the beginning of the chapter, and he's talking about the order of kind of like a hierarchy of authority. He says, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ," and um, he talks about Christ being the head of man and man the head of woman. Um, but also, he talks about you know talks about the the covering, and I think a lot of this covering has to do with. Uh, societal things societal norms he talks about every man who prays with something on his head dishonors his head and yet every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head and he talks about men having short hair and women having long hair and I think some of this is a more of a societal norm and uh, that type of thing um Uh, And he talks about a man ought not to have his head covered during worship, since his image, the image and reflected glory of God. Now, we we have a thing where we don't wear hats indoors, typically. Um, Now, I know this custom is not totally followed nowadays. In the past, in days, bygone days, it was rude for a man to wear his hat indoors. He He always took his hat off indoors, because that was the proper thing to do and I think some of that comes from this uh, some of that practice comes from this scripture of you shouldn't have your head covered indoors and uh, for a woman though her hair is her covering and he he does relate that and that part of her glory of being a woman is to have her her uh, long and beautiful hair now again I think this Tends to get, lean more towards a societal norm and what's offensive and unoffensive and considerate. And there's a lot of things to think about here. Um, he says, therefore the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head um, for the sake of the angels so as not to offend them. But I mean, if we're just talking about, you know her having her hair as a covering, which he does, then, you know, and he says, you know, if a man has long hair, is it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her orma and glory. And and this this goes to, uh, and we, we largely still, in a way, have this, I know, not as much, but still, to some degree, we do, because we, uh, we do still think of men as having short hair and women long hair largely i know not i know not totally i know this has weakened and broken down over the past 50 60 years but in the past that was a much more big deal and um, now the the thing that gets me here is verse 16 he talks about all of this and then he comes down to 16 now if anyone's inclined to be contentious about this we have no no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So, you know, there's nothing really to discuss here. There's nothing more to to talk about. Um, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we just have no other practice. You know, we we look at it as a man having shorter hair and a woman having longer hair, and we consider that the normal, you know, normal way of things. Um... We still look at that largely, like I say, today. I I don't know how big a deal this is. Um, I actually shave. And it says, you know, a woman shouldn't shave her head, but a guy, it's okay for a guy to have short hair and stuff. So, and the reason I do that, though, is because I'm really already 50% bald or more. So there's nothing wrong with me shaving what little's left. Um, Nonetheless, um,. So that is that's something we we talked about at the time. And uh, then he gets into down below this, because this was this was something he talked about, and I know some people look at this and take this extremely ser- seriously. I think, though, I think part of that has to do with a societal thing. I don't think um, that it's a huge deal whether a woman has long or short hair or not. I don't think it's a big deal if a guy has long hair, um, except that I'm still the old school where if a guy has really long hair, it kind of, eh, you know, it kind of puts me off a little bit, so, but it's it's not that I don't like the person or I can't associate with someone or whatever, it's just one of those things where it's like, it's a little off-putting for me, and it's probably just because I'm an old dude, but, um... It, but it looks kind of weird, because I think of long hair as belonging to a woman, again, though I'm, I'm a much older guy, so... Sorry, that's just me. But anyway, so Paul goes on down and gets into the Lord's Supper and tells them how to do that, because they are not doing it correctly. Now, in verse 17, he gets into that. verse 17 to 22, he's telling them how not to do it, which is what they're doing, because, in part because they're having divisions... And when they come together for the Lord's Supper, they're not waiting for each other. And some go hungry and others get drunk. Okay, getting drunk. Can you imagine us getting drunk at church? So then he fusses at them. Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? And I think this is where we get more of our thoughts on the matter of we don't have a meal when we come together, but we have the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of the Lord. Um, there's really nothing wrong with, and I know some people have had themselves, have, have been taught differently, but there's nothing wrong with your church and your congregation getting together and having a meal together and um, interacting and being with each other. We're each other's Christian family. We we need that those interactions. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing that in the same building you worship in because it's just a building The church is the actual people, the congregation. The building is just a building. But then he gets down into verses 23 through uh, 32, how to really do the Lord's Supper. And you can see his influence on how we do this nowadays. We We really try to follow and do more of this version of the Lord's Supper. All right so now in the next chapter chapter 12 um, he talks about spiritual gifts talents, our role in the body of Christ and one of the key verses is verse 12 and verse 12 for just as the body is one and yet has many parts and all the parts though many form only one body so it is with Christ we are all Parts of the body of Christ, we all form the body of Christ, and I mean all, like all believers throughout the world. And um, <clears throat> but we all have different roles to play. We all have different jobs to perform within that body. And so he relates that to spiritual gifts, which spiritual gifts are um, the spiritual gifts they used to have. And if you look at version uh, verse version, if you look at verse seven. I have to laugh at myself when I say something dumb. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the spiritual illumination and enabling of the Holy Spirit for the common good. So whatever their spiritual gift may have been, just like whatever our talents and skills that we have, they're for the common good. Um, we need each other. In the body of Christ, we need other Christians. We need each other. Um, he relates this in verse 15, if I did not fly past it, if the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. Is it not on the contrary, still a part of the body and doesn't, doesn't the foot still need the hand to do things for it? Like to put shoes on it. Doesn't. The hands still need the foot to get traveled around and get around where they need to be. Of course they do. We need each other as a part of the body of Christ. We have different roles and talents and skills. Um, but we need each other. And we are all a part of the body. And that's if you look down in verses 27 and 29. And I know I'm kind of flying through this. Um, but this is just a summary. He's saying now... You collectively are Christ's body, and individually you are members of it, each with his own special purpose and function. And then in verse 29, he says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? And no, we don't all have the same role. We don't all have the same gifts or skills or talents. We do different things. So now for chapter 13 the main idea is to do all in love and love is the greatest of the spiritual well I'm going to call it a spiritual gift and a spiritual uh, result or fruit of the spirit from following the Lord Um, key verses being 1 through 3 if I speak with tongues of men and of angels but have not love for others growing out of God's love for me, then I become only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, just an annoying distraction. And if I have the gift of prophecy and speak a new message from God to the people, and understand all mysteries and possess all knowledge, and if I have all sufficient faith so that I can remove mountains but do not have love reaching out to others, I am nothing." If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love it does me no good at all. Meaning the, the love in our hearts that comes from God the love for each other and this love is an unselfish love where we're looking out for the best or the betterment of the other person. We're looking to improve their situation to help them in some way it is not a human love or a uh, or a uh, uh what do you call it or a uh, uh emotional love like we we love and are attached to our spouses which that also can be very much a, a love of the other person and we should be looking out for their betterment as well but there's more that goes into that whereas here we're talking about a spiritual love for for our our fellow christian our fellow man even if they're not a christian everyone Um, we should be looking out for their betterment. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of love we're referring to. That's the kind of love God has for us. Now, a definition for God's love is found in verses 4 through 8. And this, everyone knows these verses. Love endures with patience and serenity. Love is kind and thoughtful and is not jealous or envious. Love does not brag and is not proud or arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not provoked, nor overly sensitive, and easily angered. It does not take into account a wrong endured. It does not rejoice at injustice, but rejoices with the truth when right things and truth prevail. Love bears all things, regardless of what comes. Believes all things, looking for the best in each one. Hopes all things, remaining steadfast during difficult times. Endures all things, without weakening. And then in verse 80, he starts that with, love never fails. But as for all these other things, they will pass away. So then he also talks about, in verse 13, if I can find it, and now there remain. He talks about faith, hope, love. He says, of these three, the greatest, he says, well, hold on i kind of. I was going to do a loose kind of reference, but I think I misspoke. But the greatest of these is love. Was the ending portion of that? But let me read the verse to you. Verse thirteen. And now there remain faith, abiding trust in God and His promises, hope, confident expectation of eternal salvation, love, unselfish love for others, growing out of God's love for me. These three. These are the choicest graces. But the greatest of these is love. And that's how Paul ends that chapter. So now we're in chapter 14. The main idea is prophecy is superior to tongues. Now all throughout chapter 14 where he's saying prophecy, the way he speaks about prophecy to me is they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching and teaching God's word. And he's saying that is better than speaking in tongues. Why? Because um, when we're preaching the word, teaching the word, when you're prophesying the message from God, which back then they didn't have the Bible the way we do now, so they were prophesying. Understand, I mean, it really was a prophecy, whereas now we really are teaching out of the written word, the Bible. Um... So anyway, because they were teaching new things that were coming from God, not from man. So, but though that is better, it is superior to tongues, because tongues is something that, especially without interpretation, it does not speak to the people. It's not edifying. It's not teaching anything. So, then he has more instructions to, on, on, uh, on public worship and part of that does concern speaking in tongues so key verses verses 2 through 4 for one who speaks in an unknown tongue does not speak to people but to god for no one understands him or catches his meaning but by the spirit he speaks mysteries secret truths hidden things but on the other hand the one who prophesies speaks to people for edification to promote their spiritual growth and speaks words of encouragement to uphold and advise them concerning the matters of God, and speaks words of consolation to compassionately comfort them. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church, promotes growth in spiritual wisdom, devotion, holiness, and joy. So he's definitely contrasting those two there, and he talks about, you know, the the tongue speaking in tongues is not understood and you know if you have an interpreter fine he, he mentions that but otherwise it does not edify and there's no point to it and he says you should remain silent um, prophecy which really is teaching in this case um, is edifying to all and is proper and should be happening in order we shouldn't be out of order. We shouldn't be having a disorderly, everyone trying to talk at once. Service should be orderly with one speaker at a time. Uh, no tongues without interpretation. And I think they may have had a specific issue, but they're say, he's saying that married women. Now, in the connotation in the translation, in the way this is um, put here, in this chapter, is that um, married women should be silent. But um, as I said, they may have had a specific issue with disorderliness in their um, congregation and in their meetings. Um, we don't know, you know, what what had been going on or who had been going on. But it was, he's saying that. Um, the women, and this is translated just women, but the actual word used here actually refers to married women, or a married woman. So, um, he's talking about they should be silent in church, for they are not authorized to speak, but are to take a subordinate place. But, I don't know what their issue was or what their problems were with that. Um, I know we want to appreciate everyone's interaction, you know, especially like when you're teaching and having a class. Now when we're going when we're having a sermon, see we like I said, we're a highly organized um, type of service nowadays. No one, not even other men <clears throat> are allowed or are supposed to interrupt the speaker. Preacher, when he's given the lesson, the sermon, but when we're having our Bible studies and we're having our uh, teaching, and we're wanting, we want everyone to interact. We want the women to interact. A lot of times, the the women have good godly wisdom to share. We want that. So, I think we have to realize that they had some specific issues and they had troubles, and that they had troubles with having an orderly service. Um, So a lot of this pertains to having an orderly service, a good service. So um, I think there was probably a specific issue here that he's trying to address with them, and I don't think that uh, the true intention is for all time all women to be silent in church. I don't think that was the idea that doesn't, if you think about it, that doesn't make good sense. Um, but nonetheless, um, if you look at the true translation of that, it would only pertain to married women and not single women. And I have no idea that, like I say, that really doesn't make good sense. So there had to be something going on there that we're just not quite privy to. If someone else has a better <clears throat> understanding or explanation of that, that would be great. I, I'm Personally, I'm going to have to study that more anyway, and see if there is some more to that. Um, but <clears throat> that's all for Chapter 14. He's, uh, you know, mainly trying to get them to, uh, you know, let them know that prophecy or teaching is superior to tongues, for it edifies all, and you know, just that we should have an orderly public service. Um, it doesn't do any good for people from the outside to come into your service and there's people speaking in tongues that doesn't mean anything to them, and it looks crazy, and um, you don't have an orderly service, so nobody can make sense out of what's being said or what's being taught, because everything's just crazy and out of control. And this is why we are more orderly and more controlled in our services. Alright, so in chapter 15, he talks about And I guess they had a dissension within their group about the resurrection. This is kind of crazy to think that that anyone would consider themselves a Christian and not believe in the resurrection, but let's just go ahead and talk about this. Um, He's saying that your belief is in vain without the resurrection. And he's absolutely right. If you don't believe there's a resurrection, if you believe it's just this life and you're dead, our faith is meaningless because that means Jesus did not rise again. That means none of that is true. That means none of that is true if you don't believe in the resurrection. <clears throat> so, um, excuse me, but that's uh, um, hold on just a second. I had to have a little something to wet uh, my whistle there. Um, Let's look at verses three and four. For I passed on to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to that which the scriptures foretold, and that he was buried, and that he was bodily raised on the third day according to that which the scriptures foretold. So this is the good news. This is the basis of our salvation. Christ died for our sins, for our forgiveness, and he rose again again for our um, salvation so that we would be able to go to heaven so that he would be our uh, intermediary he would be our uh, spokesperson with God he would be the first of many the first of of a family of children of God so without without that there is no reason for him to have even died so um in verse 19 he says, our faith our faith <laughs> sorry, our faith is in vain. if there's no resurrection, so uh, let me head down there. If we who are abiding in Christ have hoped only in this life and this is all there is, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied because we're just constricting and restricting ourselves from, from whatever we want, for no reason. So, he also talks about the order of resurrection down in verses twenty through twenty-eight, and he talks about how Christ has already been raised from the dead; he was the first, and then the rest of us will be following that. He talks about how um, how death came into the world through Adam, and how. Now, life, again, is being brought back to us by Jesus. And Jesus will, see, after that comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, Christ will hand the kingdom over to God. And he talks about the last enemy to be abolished and, and put to an end is death. So, He's talking about the order of these things. And that's down verses 20-28. through Um, However, when all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the One, the Father, who put all things under him so that God may be all in all manifesting his glory without any opposition, the supreme indwelling and controlling factor of life. So, we will be raised... <clears throat> you know at the end we will be raised imperishable and immortal and that is what is going to happen so he talks about all of that and he compares talking about the heavenly bodies and and uh, all these things so it is with the resurrection of the dead the human body that is sown is perishable and mortal it is raised imperishable and immortal So he talks about all these things regarding the resurrection and explaining and trying to get them to understand how it is. And he talks to them. He says, I tell you a mystery, a secret, uh, truth decreed by God and previously hidden but now revealed. We will not all sleep in death, but we will all be completely changed, wondrously, wondrously transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet call for a trumpet will sound and the dead who believed in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will be completely changed wondrously transformed sorry I have trouble with that word right now alright then moving on to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians the main idea here is just some instructions and greeting um verses 1 through 4 he's talking about uh, the collection now concerning the money collected for the relief of the saints you are to do the same as I directed the other churches on the very... No, <clears throat> let me say this correctly. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside in proportion to his prosperity and save it so that no collections will need to be taken when I come. He doesn't want that to be a distraction. Um, this money is not for him either. This is money that they were giving to the saints in Jerusalem who were... I think they were going through a famine or some hard time. And... Um, and he's talking about, uh, let's see, verse 4, And if it is fitting for me to go too, they will accompany me. That he and Barnabas would take that money to Jerusalem if he was going. And uh, that was to help the saints there. This is a good example of something that you that can be done, how churches can support each other, congregations can support each other. Um, it's as a good example it is a good example uh, if you constrict and restrict your church to this is all we can do then you're making a law out of a good example and that's not the intent And I'm just, just going to throw that out there real quick um, but this was some quick instruction and it's something that again we follow this example a uh, lot. We, we have an offering every week part of that is to help with our, our local church and congregation um, maybe all of it is for that but some of it you know is going to pay the ministers etc., etc. so some of it's going to pay the bills and some of it's going to pay the ministers and some of that some of that should be used to help other congregations it should be helped should be used to help people in the community so that the people in the community realize that is a christian church that they believe in helping others and you know they believe in um, doing God's work, and drawing in, you know, drawing in the the people who are um, maybe disenfranchised in the community that uh, don't have anything, and don't believe in God because they don't have anything, but, uh, You know when someone gives them a helping hand and helps them out sometimes that will help bring them to god and uh it's fine to look at that and say yeah you should do that individually which we should do you know we should all be doing something individually to also help but um we shouldn't exclude the idea that your church could do that as well because that's it kind of goes against the things that uh, we see Jesus doing, and here we see the them doing in the first century, where they're they're helping others, and uh, and it's a good example. Like I say, nonetheless, moving on, he also warns them and tells them to be on guard. If we look at verse thirteen, be on guard, stand firm in your faith in God, respecting His precepts and keeping your doctrines sound. Act like mature men and be courageous, be strong. Let everything you do be done in love, motive well okay, sorry. Motivated and inspired by God's love for us. And then he talks about appreciating you know appreciating uh, approving and appreciating ministers and he gives them a final greeting let me look here treating them um, treating such leaders with uh, courtesy and respect because they've devoted themselves to the ministry you know um, yeah and then he talks about a final greeting and a final blessing, he, he puts to them um, the grace of our Lord Jesus, his unmerited favor, his spiritual blessing, his profound mercy be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, that is the end of 1 Corinthians, and that was all in preparation of Paul also believed at this point that he was going to be going to Corinth to visit with them and to speak to them. So, that's it. That's my summary of 1 uh, Corinthians. I think, I think we have discussed and hit all the, the highlights. And you'll notice that uh, this recurring theme of having order in the service, of being and acting orderly, and removing immorality, those are the main things um, also to be well and also to be unified to not have divisions and contentions among you so um, those are probably the three main things you know you know be together don't be contentious you know don't have divisions have an orderly service one that makes sense and and get the immorality out of your group um, so those are the things he covers. though, so actually, if you look at it, he covers them in this order though, he says, you know, don't have divisions. You know, don't don't have divisions, be unified together in Christ. And then he talks about getting the immorality out, get the immorality out, avoid immorality, stay away from immorality, do not have idols, stay away from idolatry, idolatry. And then he goes into having an orderly service, following these practices, so that your service will be orderly and make sense and people can be edified. And then, you know, then he goes into his, uh, his greetings and blessings and appreciations of the, uh, of the other ministers and things. All right. Like I said, that is 1 Corinthians. That is the summary for that. I know this has been long. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a wonderful day. Remember to stay safe. And remember that God loves you.